0: Alive, multivitamins and minerals give you all the nutrients you need for a well-nourished life. Made with a blend of 26 fruits and vegetables and suitable for vegetarians. There's a range of targeted solutions for the whole family. Get more out of life with Alive. Available in selected Holland and Barrett stores and online. Food supplements should not be used as a substitute for varied balanced diet and healthy lifestyle. Hi, I'm Dr.
1: Gemma Newman, your host for the Wellness Edit podcast with Holland and Barrett and author of The Plant Power Doctor coming out in January 2021. In this episode of our brand new podcast, we're going to be talking about happiness. Now, this has been a tremendously challenging year for the majority of people. So we thought we'd end the series on a high and talk about ways in which we can all start to improve our own happiness. To join me for this fascinating conversation, we have Owen O'Kane. He is a motivational speaker, he's a therapist, and he's best-selling author of two books, 10 to Zen and 10 Times Happier. And it is absolutely fabulous to have you joining me today,
2: Owen. Hello. Hello, and thanks for having me. It's great to be
1: here. Oh, it's, it's a joy. And I think throughout this podcast series, we've done... Um, a job in really trying to help people figure out ways in which to optimize their health and well-being and at this stage i think uh, it's really important to talk about happiness because this is something that people have really struggled with this year yeah. um, uh, what have what have you found in your experience has this been a challenging year for people
2: in your experience i think it has i mean it's it you know i know this has been said before but there's no roadmap you know we 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 don't we weren't really prepared for the year and nobody really had a solution and I was thinking about you know my book I finished the book about a year ago and um, the book is about happiness but not happiness in the kind of fluffy airy fairy way it's about you know how can we be you know as human beings how can we be happier and I believe most of us can be much happier than we are but often we don't realise that because we create the of obstructions and blocks in our life. But then, of course, lockdown happened when, in the external world, there were a load of challenges that would justifiably explain why people wouldn't be happy. And yeah, I was a bit doubtful about releasing the book on happiness in the middle of all of the chaos. But then I had a really interesting conversation with my dad. Um, my my dad, um, he was a builder and, you know, just a very everyday bloke. And I said, maybe I should hold fire and not release a book. And he said, um, well, tell me more about the book. What's it about? And I said, well, it's about happiness and how people can be happier. And he said, why on earth would you delay Bringing out a book. This is when people are going to need the book. And interestingly, in that moment, I thought, he's right. I'm he knew not going it. to hold back. So the, the book's come out. Thankfully, you know it's been received really well. But more importantly, I think it is helping people navigate their way through some difficult times.
1: Absolutely. And I think you're so right. We need that kind of information now more than ever. I think yeah. it is natural for many people to feel more stressed at a time like this, you know, with the increased anxiety and lack of certainty and feeling that we're out of control Um so, yeah, I do think that it's probably the perfect time to have released something like this. And before we get into your tips and ideas, I would just really love to learn a little bit more about your own happiness journey and why yep. it is that you were able to write this book. What did it mean to you and where did it all begin?
2: Um, so, I, I, my background split. So, half of my background was in health and then Halfway through my career, I retrained in, in psychotherapy. So I'd spent about ten years of my career working with people who were terminally ill, and um, and I loved that work. I was really interested in the work, but I, I got to a point and I realised that what most people were struggling with was psychological distress, mm. and I didn't. I had all the medical information, but I didn't have the tools to to, to manage their psychological distress. So I went off and retrained. So the second half of my career, um, I retrained as a psychotherapist, I was a clinical lead in the NHS and um, I was doing workshops and talks and I created, a, my first group was called 10 to Ten, and it was teaching people how to quiet the mind in 10 minutes a day. I suppose my argument is that people don't have a lot of time, so I didn't want to create a concept or write a book where people have to spend an hour or two hours every day, so I wanted to create a concept that was practical and useful. And... And I'm also really interested in happiness because most people, I would say 99% of people that come to therapy, when you say to them, what would you like from therapy? They either say, I just want to feel better or I'd like to be a bit happier. I mean, Mm. and that's kind of universal. And I got really interested in happiness and in my own life, I know what brings me happiness. The, The simpler I keep my life, the happier I am. And the less, you know, I, I just kind of, and I think often we can create our own complications. So for me, it's about kind of, you know, reducing everything down a few notches and create more simplicity. But I also realize that most people get in the way of their own happiness and they don't realize they're doing it. And that's what I'm really interested in. And that's what motivated me to write the book. And the 10 chapters then cover the 10 areas where I see people get stuck over and over and over again.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. I really love what you said about simplicity. So not only do we tend to overcomplicate our minds and our emotions and our personal situations, but also as therapists, as doctors, um, we may also sometimes overcomplicate the journey to feeling better. So for you to come up with a concept that actually helps people within 10 minutes begin that process of feeling better makes it so much more accessible to all of us. So yeah, I love the idea of keeping it simple because, you know, there are so many ways in which we could try and think, oh, well, I've got to find my identity. I've got to find purpose. I've got to live with intention. I've got to breathe. I've got to have a routine i've got to nurture my relationships i've got to be the best i can at work i've got to give service to others and then by the time you've got through this entire list of things you're definitely not happy
2: <laughs> exactly and, and and that's the thing really it's about you know how do you reprioritize what are the things in life that are important what what does matter what what helps you function better because certainly as a therapist how i work is that we're never going to sort out all of the issues in our life you know regardless of whether it's stuff in the past. And we don't have a lot of control over what's going to come next. So it's about, well, how can we function better? How can we, on a day-to-day basis, manage our minds better, change our perspective, and I suppose really just, you know, approach life with a lot more curiosity and openness. And I think it's been really interesting for me because, of course, lockdown, you know, challenges all of that. And for me, what's been fascinating is I've been really forced to practice what I preach because I don't like uncertainty either. I, do, yes. I, like, I like a list, I like a plan, I like to know what I'm doing. And suddenly, like everyone else, you know, all of my plans changed very quickly. I was releasing a book in a pandemic. All of my talks and workshops were online. I'm technophobic. So <laughs> you know, just, suddenly I had to navigate this new world. But actually I thought, you know something, I don't have any control over this. So all I can do is respond mm-hmm. in the best way I can, which is managing this one step at a time and just taking that as it comes. And it works.
1: It does work. And I think the pandemic has really brought us home to the idea that in actual fact, we're not ever necessarily really in full control of the events of our lives. And having to understand that deeply and then relinquish the idea of control and then be able to mentally, emotionally, spiritually, Accept that the only thing we do have control over is our responses to the events around us. It's actually tremendously freeing, but it's it's a process, and it can sometimes involve pain as well, can't it?
2: Hard work. I was sent to a client of mine a few days ago. If you if you look at the definition of anxiety. It's uh, an intolerance of uncertainty. So that's a textbook definition um, mm. from a psychology perspective. So there's a big clue in that, really. So if you're intolerant of uncertainty, you're going to become more anxious. And the more tolerant you can become with the uncertainty, then your level of anxiety is going to drop. And that's certainly clinically something I do in my work when I'm with people and I'm in a room with them. It's about can you be more tolerant with the fact that you don't know? and that there isn't predictability and there isn't certainty. And maybe just trust that you will manage whatever the next step is. And I think what I see a lot of people doing at the moment is you know, they, they're almost kind of spinning 10, 15 plates at the one time,
0: mm. trying
2: to work it all out. When's it going to be a vaccine? When's it going to end? What's going to happen to my job? And for me, it's about, okay, what one thing can you manage today? You know, mm. what, what one thing can you deal with today that gives you a sense of control? Maybe focus on that and then all the other stuff. I'm not saying that you deny it, sir, but you can park it and just leave it be and think, okay, well, that's not in my control today, but I am going to focus on the one thing or two things that I do have a bit of control over. And then suddenly you can see people feeling a sense of relief Mm. if they're not having to juggle it all at one time and say, okay, well, this can be enough for today. And then the other stuff I'll think about. So, you know, I think it really is about perspective.
1: Mm. That's really valuable to think about because it can feel very overwhelming when you are contemplating all the things that have changed. Say, for example, you had the virus yourself, or you had an ill-loved one, or you had someone who was immunocompromised, or you've lost your job, or you were in furlough and you don't know what's going to happen next, or you know, your children were having to be homeschooled, and then there's the risk of them having to go back home for a week or two, or three, or however many weeks. You know, all of these things different things. Everybody has a very different experience. But I think there's this collective experience of uncertainty, which, as you say, this isn't a panacea. Having Finding a way to be happier or at least be more comfortable mm-hmm. with uncertainty is not going to solve all your problems. Well, um, but there's, as, as you've pointed out, it's a way of being able to Understand that everything that is in existence is in existence, to notice it, to be aware of it, but also not to become overwhelmed by the seeming enormity of it all.
2: Yeah, I mean, you make a brilliant point because everything you've mentioned there, they're all external circumstances. You know, every single thing that's gone on in people's worlds, it's all gone on in the external world. And I suppose my argument is, and it's not minimizing any of that, because, you know, I hear this probably like you. I mean, I'm hearing the horror stories every day of the week of what's going on in people's lives. But what I, you know, we may not be able to control the external stuff, but I do think the one thing that you do have control over is you can control the internal world. And if you can learn how to quieten your mind, if you can learn how to manage unhelpful, anxious, critical thinking, if you can learn how to manage that sense of overwhelm, well, it just means then that all of the stuff that's going on in the external world, even though it may be challenging and difficult, it just means you're coming from a much more solid base than you would be if you suddenly enter into the chaos so it it really isn't very just magical happy thinking it's all going to be okay it really is about taking taking control and taking ownership um and kind of feeling quite rooted because then suddenly you'll you'll cope much better
1: yeah so feeling rooted taking ownership of your internal world
2: yeah how do we do this owen How? Tell us. That's all in the book. (laughs) (laughs) It's all in the book. I mean, I think think it's a a process of a lot of things, but, you know, I always come back to the neuroscience of of the brain, really, if you think of this organ that sits on the top of your head, it's a piece of jelly, and it's the epicentre for everything that goes on. And I think a lot of the time, we, we, we take the information from the brain as a given. We take it for granted. So, for example, You know, I heard someone say to me yesterday, in fact, oh, um, I'm just a warrior. That's just who I am. I thought, well, actually, it's not who you are. It's an aspect of your personality. But you've got a brain that, that functions in a particular way that's not helpful for you. And I think very often what the neuroscientists are telling us more and more and more is that if you've got a highly activated threat system so there's a part of the brain on the right hand side as you know call the amygdala and when that's highly activated or it's overactivated, then you're going to feel that sense of threat and worry so one of the key techniques is really stuff like using the breath meditation learning to quieten the noise in the mind and um, stuff like meditation i mean people when they hear the word meditation get a little bit freaked but meditation helps quieten the noise it helps regulate the mind you know, if you think of our neural pathways, when we're in an anxious state, these neural pathways are chaotic. And yet, meditation, just bringing your attention to your point of focus, helps retrain the brain, quietens mm. the noise, regulates the neural pathways. And s- suddenly, then what you get is you get a brain that functions better for you mm. rather than feel like it's in chaos mode. And I'm always struck by that every time I just stop to breathe or meditate. Yeah. But the amount I how think... frantic it can feel. Just that stopping even for a minute or two just to catch a breath and come into the present moment, suddenly it can just reduce all of the chaos that goes on in the mind.
1: I like that, reducing the chaos. And it feels a little bit like that in 2020. It's, I've, I've called it the coronavirus carousel where yeah. people are just <laughs> kind of going round and round, watching the news, watching the death rates, watching the um, hospitalizations, watching all the, the negative things that are happening and, and then just taking a moment to, Jump off that carousel and watch it as it spins and just notice notice what's happening, but not to try to get yourself too caught up in it all can be tremendously helpful. And I really like the point that you made about how the brain works because genuinely, Our brains are not designed, actually, I don't think, to keep us happy. Our brains are designed to keep us safe. And so, you know, as you've pointed out, if someone's got a highly active amygdala, that threat center is going to be very much activated. We're going to have a general negativity bias, especially based on perhaps previous experiences. And that's a natural mechanism to keep you alive and to keep you safe. But... As you said, it's not always that helpful. And if we can tune into things like you've mentioned, you mentioned meditation, you mentioned the breath, those are things that can then activate the parasympathetic nervous system, our rest and renew, and yeah. actually help us to feel a little bit more functional. Is that right?
2: Exactly. And even, you know, obviously even in the world of food and diet and nutrition and stuff, I mean, I mean, you guys are... Experts in these fields, you know, when you go outside of the world of psychology and you hear what what the other experts are telling us, even the foods that we eat can increase our inflammatory markers. And I often think that anxiety is an inflammatory response, you know. And I think even thinking about the foods that we put into your body, you know, supplements we take, exercise. I mean, there's been a mountain of research on getting out there, even if it's for 10, 15 minutes going for a brisk walk, what we know is that that increases serotonin reuptake, can improve oxytocin, increase our dopamine levels. So, I mean, the interesting thing is when we talk a lot about a lot of the, um, when we talk about the, the well-being measures that we can use, food, exercise, meditation, using the breath, whatever it is that works for you, there's enough scientific evidence to back up the fact that this stuff is really really useful because you can you can change the chemistry of your mind you can change what level of hormones are secreted and stuff so it's not it's not wooly. this stuff is really really important um so the more so when i talk about ownership it really is about encouraging people the more you can take ownership for your own health and well-being then not only you're going to feel well physically but actually mentally you're going to cope and you're going to function so much better
1: Hmm it's really good advice and mm-hmm. i guess sometimes that advice could be perhaps misinterpreted by somebody who's having you know a really rough time say somebody who's been tremendously ill they've got a huge amount of external stressors, how can they receive that information in a way that helps them to feel good about it, helps them to feel as though, you know, there's something I can actually do rather than thinking, oh, there's another thing that I'm expected to have to take on here. There's another thing and, oh, it's my fault. How can somebody kind of shift that so that it becomes really useful to them in their lives? It's
2: a good point, actually. And I think what you've often got to do is, you know, certainly in our line of work and in my line of work, you're really trying to encourage people and you're trying to promote techniques and ways of living that, you know, work. And, you know, I think sometimes giving people too much information at one time uh, is tricky and it's difficult. So I'll often say to people, you know, maybe just start with one thing, you know, give it a go, try it out, see see what difference it makes. And I think experientially, once people realise something is helpful for them and they start to feel a bit better. And you know, my argument will always be, even if you feel slightly better, I always use a zero to 10 scale, you know, I think even if you've gone up a point and you're feeling slightly better or your anxiety's dropped a point, that's a pretty good indicator that this is a positive choice for you. So I think it's about giving enough information where it's clear that this is driven by evidence and not just something that we make up. Because I think there's a danger in the world of health that some of it can just feel like it's abstract. So I think it's about making it relevant, explaining the the evidence, but in, re, in everyday language, not scientific language, just about explaining it. And, you know, bringing it alive, I suppose, and taking it bit by bit and step by step rather than it feeling like another task or another thing to do.
1: So essentially, it's it's really beneficial then to focus on small steps to feeling better rather than necessarily trying to take on some big changes.
2: I think so, because I think that, you know, feeling better in the world of health, you know, we we know that there are not there aren't any magic wand solutions to feeling better quickly. We know that at the moment in life, things are chaotic things are challenging things are difficult there isn't a magic one solution but i do believe sometimes that you know go back to that point about simplicity one single action in your day so i'll give you an example yesterday i had a really stressful day i just had lots of things going on at one point and at one point yesterday afternoon i stopped literally for two three minutes you know, with a cup of tea and I just sat in the back garden and it was two, three minutes of my day but I just did, did nothing. I just sat looking at the tree drinking a cup of tea and I come back and I had loads of other things to do but I genuinely felt better. Yeah. Because I'd stepped out and I'd just allowed that moment for the, for the mind to quiet and, and I'd just allowed my perspective to go somewhere else rather than, you know, it's a bit like quicksand, isn't it? You know, the more we get absorbed in the day, it's like we you know, you suddenly feel yourself going on this downhill slope and then suddenly you're in quicksand and that can feel gunky and messy and like you're stuck. And I suppose the key for me is recognizing when you're on that slippery slope and beginning to spot that maybe it's time to pause or take a break or stop or catch a breath or get out and walk around the block, whatever the context is, and then suddenly you come back to that point of stability again.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point to make because I I notice this amongst a lot of my patients who are uh, parents, especially um, of young children. The idea of actually sitting down to have a cup of tea and think of nothing and look at the tree seems so self indulgent to some people. They oh, think I can't no. possibly do that. What a waste yeah. of time!
2: <laughs> oh, no. I and mean, you know, and that that is the, That is the thing that we hear all the time. I mean, every client when I Sorry, you know, when you think about it, and and, you know, here's the interesting thing for me, we all operate from from three key systems. You've got your threat drive, which is your anxiety mechanisms. Um, You've got your soothing drive, which is kind of self-care. And then you've kind of got that other part of us, which is more about ambition, driving forward so you've got these three mechanisms playing with at any one given time and most people I meet in clinical in my clinical work they will come along and their threat systems are very very acutely developed you know so they know how to to manage well they know how to use anxiety very effectively but not always in a good way people's drive systems are very very developed so they know how to achieve succeed achieve more do more that's their drive system. But then, when you come to the other system, which is soothing, how do you self-soothe? What do you do in a tough moment? What do you do when you're feeling overwhelmed? What I find is most people come and they they have no idea where to start because that's not something we're taught. Hard to soothe. Hard to reassure yourself. Hard to quieten the critical voice in your mind. So when people are a bit skeptical with me about self-care and taking a moment out, or catching a breath or looking at a tree, wherever it is, going for a run. My argument is that once you learn how to self-soothe, everything else falls into place because you're not reliant on other stuff. And you got that mechanism. So I don't really see it as a luxury. I see it as a, an essential, to be quite honest. I mean, if I didn't use these, um, you know, tips that I talk about and techniques that I use in everyday practice, if I didn't use them in my everyday life, I live in function well.
1: Yeah, it's so true. And learning to self-soothe. So uh, some might say, well... Actually, the way I soothe myself is having half a bottle of wine in the evenings <laughs> and then having an entire bar of chocolate, yeah. then potentially maybe looking to having lots of cups of tea and coffee throughout the day to get them their energy levels up uh, and then eating a lot of maybe half a packet of biscuits as well to, yeah. to self-soothe. What, what do you think when people are using those kinds of self-soothing strategies, what would you say?
2: I mean, they're normal, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's intuitive for us as human beings so if we're having a tough day and stuff to grab a biscuit or have a glass of wine and stuff. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to police stuff and say that it's wrong because I think everything in life is about moderation. And My argument will always be that regardless of what, what you whether it's a couple of drinks or whatever the context, if it's too much chocolate, I think if you're in control of it and and it and it doesn't feel that it's getting in the way of your life or it doesn't come with a very negative aftermath well then maybe that's okay some of the times you know maybe that's okay as a comfort but where i think it gets a bit more tricky if i'm talking to someone and they say okay during lockdown i've been drinking a bottle of wine every night
1: mm-hmm.
2: and i do not feel better after it and it makes me forget and i just escape into another world my key question will always be is how do you feel the next day mm-hmm. and then often i'll hear I feel a bit hungover, I feel a bit rubbish and I notice I'm not sleeping as well. So it's the kind of the payoff that often Mm. comes with, you know, it's kind of the difference between adaptive coping strategies and maladaptive. And I think every individual has to make that decision. Okay, Mm. what for you feels like it's a reasonably healthy, useful coping strategy? And what on the other hand feels like actually this is getting a bit repetitive and I'm not sleeping I am feeling hungover most days. I'm not thinking clearly. I'm a bit more agitated. So I think you have to measure. I know, certainly. I mean, I love chocolate. I mean, it, It's Me my too. vice. Love it. <laughs> Absolutely love chocolate. But I also do know that if I have too much of it, I do get a headache. And I feel sick. And interestingly, when the, when the high wears off of a bit of chocolate, I do know that I'm a bit grumpier than normal. So it comes with a price tag. So I'm quite good at monitoring. Limitation. so i think it's about people have to make the decision what feels healthy for them but i think often the external stimuli stuff that we put into your systems i think there are sometimes more simpler ways that actually work as effectively if not more effectively yeah for us
1: yeah i think you're right um and i love the way that you ask the question because when you ask the question both of yourself or even to somebody that you are a therapist for, then it allows them the space to actually analyze the answer rather than saying to them, you know, that's an awful lot of alcohol. You shouldn't drink that much or "Mm, that's a lot of chocolate. Are you sure you're not putting on a few pounds? You're actually giving them the opportunity and giving yourself the opportunity to ask the question. And then once you've asked the question, they can come up with the answer invariably themselves.
2: And that's the thing. And that's one of the chapters in the book about taking responsibility. And it sounds really, really harsh, but I really fundamentally believe that you don't develop and you don't change. You don't become happier, essentially, until that moment you take responsibility. Because it's Kenny of in our DNA, we're going through a tough time in life and we're struggling. They- Easiest thing for any of us to do is to say, "Well, he did that, she did that. My job's rubbish. I don't like my boss. Life's too difficult." So we place all of it out there and we blame life. Now, granted, life—some of it may be warranted—but often we cannot change any of that stuff. So it is about coming back and thinking, "Okay, well, what can I take responsibility for? Hmm. What can I do?" You know, what can I take ownership for? And often that can be difficult to hear sometimes. I often describe that point of therapy as like a tug of war, you mm. know, because it feels like suddenly you're you're in this middle ground of oh, you're actually you you're actually asking me to sort it out. Well, you're letting
1: go of your anchor. You're letting go of the thing that is the excuse as to why so many other things are going wrong. Exactly. And it's a really hard thing to do.
2: A hard thing to do, but the liberation and freedom that comes with it, because then suddenly you're in control.
1: Mm.
2: And I think yeah. even then, if you think about anxiety, if you're taking responsibility for your life and you're taking ownership, then suddenly things don't feel as overwhelming because you know, well, actually, no, this is down to me. This comes yeah. back to me. And then suddenly... That's the one thing you can't manage.
0: Mm. Hmm, I like that. are you feeling down sometimes it can be difficult to beat the blues especially during the winter months so if you're struggling why not try karma mood a traditional herbal remedy containing saint john's wort which helps relieve low mood and mild anxiety naturally restore your inner sunshine with karma mood available in selected holland and barrett stores and online karma mood saint john's wort is a traditional herbal medicinal product used to relieve the symptoms of low mood and mild anxiety Exclusive. Based upon long-standing use as a traditional remedy. Always read the label. Speak to a GP if you're concerned about low mood. I'm thinking about how
1: it's been this year as well for people in all these different circumstances. Um, given that many of the solutions lie within us, um, what do you think about loneliness? Um, A lot of people have been spending more time alone. Um, Can that impact upon happiness, do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, the research is clear on this here. You know, we are hardwired to connect as human beings, regardless of personality types. It doesn't matter whether you're extroverted or introverted. We need human contact. And of course, all of the research done on touch even, you know, a handshake, a hug, you know, a warm smile. You know, you get the, the hormonal surge of the again and oxytocin, dopamine, you feel better. So, of course, this year people have been disconnected. They haven't been seeing loved ones. They haven't been able to hug people. People have been in nursing homes and not have relatives. I mean, people haven't been able to say goodbye to people. I mean, I, I was speaking at Cheltenham Festival last week and re- regardless of threat and danger, if you take away human interaction from people, you lose something really, really significant. And I think in whatever way it's possible, within the remits of lockdowns or partial lockdowns, or whatever, I think that kind of connection and communication and eye contact and touch and all of that stuff is hugely important and, and finding ways. You know, often it's digital these days. I don't know about you, but I miss been in the room with people Oh, yes. I really miss looking into people's eyes and, you know, just feeling the energy of somebody in a room rather than digital platforms. But it's the world we're living in at the moment. But I think loneliness is a huge problem. And I think, I feel really strongly about this actually. I think we all have a collective responsibility about the people in our lives, people who we know are struggling, Mm -hmm. that that we do try and reach out and connect and and, and don't make it a problem for the person, but we make it a collective issue that we all take responsibility for.
1: No, well, you're so right because ultimately we are all connected. So, yeah, I think moving forwards with the concept of happiness, what what is happiness? I mean, I know it's a, that's a really big question, but let's let's really dial in to say what is being happy all about.
2: It's a, it, it's an it's an enormous question, and I think it's an impossible one to to give a full answer to because I know what it is for me to be happy as a human being. I just, you know, instinctively, intuitively, in the depths of my being, I know when I'm happy, and and that that can be just feeling a sense of contentment, feeling at ease, and feeling comfortable in my own skin. Okay, and that's that's what it is for me. Your idea of happiness will be something very, very different. But I believe that innately, most people know when when they're at a point of ease and stability and feel comfortable in their world and the world around them. And for me. I think that's what happiness is and people define that in, in whatever ways. Now, of course, we label it, you know, people think it's the oldest cliches in the book. I'll be happier when I'm richer, more famous, a better job. You know, all of the materialistic stuff that we talk about. I think, look, I know from my own experience, sat with patients in a room every day. This does not bring happiness it doesn't you know it really is an insight. okay
1: okay listeners just to clear this up having (laughs) a nice car having a nice house having a good job does not bring you intrinsic happiness
2: (laughs) i think the desire for wanting more i'm not saying these things are important i think comfort and safety and security there's nothing wrong with wanting any of these things but i think the danger is when we rely on them as a means of being happy and you know that constant i'll be happy when I've had a job. I'll be happy when I get a bigger house. I'll be happy when I get a, a nice car. I'll be happier when I'm richer. It's actually a bottomless pit because in my experience, when, when you're working with human beings, yeah, they, you know, the next layer happens and then there's always something else. You know, there's always something more. And I think it's you know, come back to what we talked about earlier. You know, when, when you look outside for happiness as a means of satisfying the inside stuff, often you're disappointed. And I think, you know, getting you kind of come to terms with the inside stuff, Come to terms with who you are as a human being, what makes you tick, what makes you happy. Are you living a life that's true to your values? And have you got the right people in your life? Are you surrounded by the right people? Are you making choices that are right for you? I think those decisions are and those questions are more likely, are more likely to lead you to happiness. Then go on the external route, which is about achieving, seeking, wanting.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And you, you bring up family, relationships, friends. Now, I guess one of the keys to happiness is having functional relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Be- feeling as though you're connecting with your spouse. Um, if you are single, feeling as though you're connecting with your other loved ones, your friends, um, your children. But expectations also can sometimes get in the way of happiness. So how do you balance your relationships so that you're getting the most out of them, but that you're not expecting too much from them?
2: I mean, it, it depends on the context. One of the chapters in the book is, you know, is called Hell is Other People, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I think is true because, you know, a lot of a lot of our difficulties in life are often around conflict, either somebody in work or somebody in our family or, or our personal life. And And I think that often you have to be really realistic about, you know, the people that you do have in your life. So someone said something really powerful to me years ago, and I was having a difficulty with somebody in my life I won't say who they are but I was having the difficulty with a person in my life Um, and this person very wisely said to me you do realize that your expectations of this person rightly so are pretty high they're up here
0: Mm.
2: but you need to realize that their capability and their ability is here. So they're always going to
1: disappoint you. They're always going to disappoint you in that case.
2: And that's kind of who they are, you know, through no fault of their own. This This is our capability. This is what they can deliver. But the whole time there's this conflict between, no, but I want them to be more. I want them to be better. I want them to be more reliable, whatever and then you've got this dissatisfaction. And I think for me, it's, you know, we, we all evaluate the people in our life and our worlds. And I think it is about kind of thinking, what are they capable of delivering? And it's also about realizing as well, as like we are all acting out our own stuff all the time. Everyone has their issues. Everyone has their their demons. Everyone has stuff going on. And the whole time in life, we're all interjecting and connecting and conflict. And, and I could say something to you. And it could really, you know, mortally offend you. And I won't know I've done it, but it could be that I've tapped on something, you know, you may feel on over you know, you might feel undervalued or underrated, or, or I you might say something to me and I might feel God that was really offensive or I felt disrespected in that moment. But you won't know my story fully and I won't know yours. So sometimes what we do is we're colliding the whole time and we're activating each other and it's all it's about recognizing I you know, I was talking to somebody earlier, I think work with the work with the premise that when you're in conflict with somebody work with the premise that they're potentially suffering as well i think it's a really useful way to work because if somebody has been difficult or argumentative or tricky work with the assumption that they've got something going on and they're struggling and i think you'll deal with them in a much more compassionate way rather than try to fight them back or prove them wrong or you know get one up on them you know that you know, this is who we are as human beings. It's our instinct to fight back. when often when we do fight back, then what we get is we just get carnage you know it's It's very true
1: it's very true i think as soon as you come from a place of ego or wanting to be right or wanting to assert your dominance whether it be intellectually or physically things are not necessarily going to end well
2: yeah well it's it's like you know we've said the importance of asking the question i mean Mm. not only about asking the questions broadly but i think it's about asking ourselves the questions and i know certainly in my own life if i'm in a situation and i'm finding it difficult or i'm conscious that something has bothered me the first thing I'll always do is I'll just always go inwards and say why is this bothering me Mm. you know because it could there's every possibility that it's got nothing to do with what's going on so it's kind of like bringing it back to me and thinking oh actually I'm feeling a bit I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed at the minute I'm feeling a bit I was quite badly bullied as a kid when I, when I grew up, so I kind of carried that with me into adulthood. So if I feel someone's um, undermining me or they're trying to underestimate me or, or in any way, the, there's this part of me, this wounded part of me, that will, will recognise that, even as an adult. And I need to know that because sometimes in the context of what's going on now, it's nothing, it's not relevant. So I need to manage that rather than react from you know, a, a place of a wound, if that makes sense.
1: It does make sense. And that's a really interesting point as well, because sometimes it can be hard to trust our initial instincts on something if it's come from a place of wounding, because your immediate amygdala threat fear response is to lash out based on that feeling from childhood or, f- or from when you were at work and there was a work colleague that really annoyed you or somebody reminds you of somebody who really mistreated you and so sometimes that instinctive reaction isn't always in our favour yeah. um, and that's something I suppose to also kind of uh, reflect upon and I like the way that you put it, it's, 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 uh, it's important to look within and to ask yourself the question, what is it about this person that is triggering this feeling in me. And nine times out of 10, it's probably nothing to do with them. Um, And I think somebody once told me that when you have close relationships or somebody that comes into your life and they are really winding you up, the best thing to do is to actually see, well, well, what is it in me that's causing this?
2: And why am I, (laughs) why am I reacting in this way? Exactly. And you know, it's probably worth mentioning as well, that there may be occasions when someone has just behaved badly. You know, yes. And that happens in life as well. something we just come across people and think, actually, there's absolutely no need for that. But I think asking the question first and thinking, actually, no, this is not my stuff. This is just rude or they're not respecting me or actually I'm not valuing myself if I if I, if I put up with this. So I think it's mm. the other side of the coin as well. I'm not saying that you'd be a walkover yeah. and, and allow people to behave badly or treat you badly, but I think it's always worth going in first to check, okay? Mm. Is it my stuff? And if it's not my stuff, well, of course, then you create boundaries or you speak to the person and you challenge bad behaviour. But you know, I think you know that chapter about hell is other people. I think it's just about not making assumptions and you know, again, take responsibility for your stuff. But you know, try to assume human beings. We're all suffering at some level, um, well, I think when we view life through that lens, suddenly just life feels a bit easier
1: yeah i think you're right and also you're talking about sort of suffering in general which has been a big theme i I suppose of this year hopefully the next theme will be regeneration and um you know being able to rise up through these challenges um but it's, it's made me think a bit more about social media and the role that that has on happiness, on discontent, on uh, politics, on uh, wellness, <laughs> all of the ways in which it impacts our life. I mean, do you feel like happiness, um, how to put this, in, in, in a time when social media is just so much a part of many people's lives, how do you think we can navigate this in a healthy way that will make us ultimately happier?
2: I mean, I'm going to answer this in a, in a quite a nerdy, scientific way, but I'm I'm doing it deliberately because I think it's important. If you think about the brain again as a as an organ that is taking in information all of the time, so mm. if you think of social media and kind of the media at large at the moment in terms of news and all the stuff that we hear every day probably about 90, 95% of what we are hearing at the moment is negative information. So it's either quite fear-driven or it's argumentative or it's toxic of some description. Now, our brains are like a sponge. Mm. So what they do is our brains just absorb all the information. It's like a computer program. And I just kind of think, just be really selective about what you allow your brain to be saturated with. I know certainly, look, I wasn't on social media until about two years ago and I use Instagram to create content. And I find that a warm community of just being able to interact and share useful content. If I'm being really honest, sometimes I go onto some of the other forums and I just find some of the toxicity and the arguments and stuff, I just don't find it helpful. And I think, you know, I think it's about being selective about what you get absorbed in. And I think as well, as like even in the broader context, Most people on social media will will share the best versions of their life Mm. and the best versions of them, you know. So most pictures are airbrushed or you know, life seems perfect or the relationship seems perfect. Now the reality is you and I both, well, that isn't the real world for most of us because we all have tough moments and we all have ups and downs in our life, but we're not good at putting that stuff on there. So if you're, feeling, if you're struggling and you're feeling in any way vulnerable and you scroll through social media and you think everyone else is having a great old time, even in lockdown, you know, people are having a great time, it's easy then to come off thinking, oh, God, I feel a bit... I mean, I, I, sometimes I'll come off and I, I'm really conscious that, oh, no, I'm pretty happy. And then you come off and you notice a slight dip. Mm. And I'm really aware of that. And I think, okay, well, that's not really going to get any more of my time. So I think, again, it's about being selective you know, even who you follow, you know, I so may follow people that inspire you, that lift you up.
1: And I think that is really hard, you know, because if you're having a down day, you might, you might go onto social media perhaps to cheer you up, to get that little dopamine kick. And then yeah. you end up leaving social media thinking, oh, I've just uh, filled myself with resentment and comparison and, and arguments. And <laughs> that wasn't such a great idea, actually. <laughs>
2: I, I had a period when um, there was a lot of people I knew on furlough and, you know, and they, they were, because of the weather was great, wasn't it? And people were out cycling and having the time of life. And I was busier than, than ever during this period. So I, I genuinely, I didn't have a day off at all mm. during the entire period. And it was just purely, I think, because of the nature of my work and what I do, um, and with all of the chaos that's gone on in the world, and I was conscious sometimes of going on there, and i feeling a little bit resentful of people who had a little bit of time off, because part right. of me was desiring a bit of a break, and it was just difficult to find a gap in my diary. But yet, So you can see how easy it is, you know, and I'm sure those people in would have would have been delighted to be back in work, because it's not mm-hmm. an ideal situation, but it's really interesting how the human mind can create something, create a different narrative
1: yeah With
2: a so, so,
1: so how is it how is it then that we can find our way from comparison to gratitude like What can we do to actually reframe these emotions that that it's natural to have as a human? What would be the best strategies to do that
2: I think it's about when it comes to all the comparing stuff on social media and that. I mean I think it's about you know there's a brilliant expression I've heard it a few times about you know. You may be a chapter one, and somebody else may be a chapter ten, but it doesn't mean either is right or wrong. Because your chapter ten will come. You know, it's we're all evolving at different speeds and paces all the time. And I think, for you know, all I, I can only speak for myself as a human being. I think that if you if you do what's important for you in life, if you trust your own instincts and intuition, if you do what matters to you, if you surround yourself with the right people if if you trust your own values and your own judgments mm. and you're led by them and you just be authentic and truthful, you can't really go far wrong. And I think if you keep coming back to that and thinking it doesn't matter what they're doing, it doesn't matter what he's achieved or she's done or where she's going, it doesn't matter because that's their journey. And, it, you know, it might look incredible for the other individual at the moment, but they're going to have a moment when things are tough and difficult and then, you know, so it's all variables and I suppose really most of my career has been on the front line of human suffering, you know, either working with people who were dying or certainly for the last, you know, for, you know my career has gone over 25 years to date. Half was in health, most of it terminal care, and the rest has been in psychology and mental health. Mm. Human beings suffer and human beings struggle right across the board.
1: So this is an interesting point you've made you've seen the the pinnacle of human suffering in a sense and you talked about be, people being in different chapters of their lives so it's important not to compare because where you are maybe you know somewhere very different in terms of chapters yeah. to somebody else you've talked about how to overcome these feelings and this sort of focus on the external things when we feel life is holding us back you may have already answered this question but the how is it that we can overcome that feeling you know when we feel as though uh, life isn't where we want it to be what would be a good step then to
2: move forwards there, there are a couple of things i mean i think the, the first thing is always about recognition you know i think you know i had an old supervisor who used to say to me um you always always remember when you're working with someone that if they have awareness that they're stuck then you're halfway there And that's a great place to be. So I think, you know, that awareness of where you're stuck, you know, what's the dissatisfaction about? What is it within your life that you'd like to change? What would you like to be different? Once you can look at those questions and begin to answer them, then I think, okay, well, you're halfway there because you've got awareness. The next thing then becomes about, okay, what are you going to do about it? You know, what's the next best step? Not, you know, and I think this is kind of the generation we live in. We want everything sorted today and now, and we want the solution today. Well, now, what would one next step be like that that gets you on that road? And what would be the plan step for tomorrow? So, again, it's coming back to the kind of taking it all one step at a time, simplicity, and being really realistic about how you're going to manage things I also think it's also about, and it's coming back to the point about hope again. I think like even chemically, what we know, you know, you know this set with hope, when you're hopeful, when you adopt a hopeful perspective, you produce more encephalins and more endorphins. So even to make a decision to be hopeful rather than pessimistic or fearful, you chemically again, create patterns that are just helpful for your wellness. So I think even at the most basic practical level, being hopeful has its uses. But what I would say is that for for anybody struggling at the moment, particularly, every single thing that's happened in life so far, every war, every famine, every disaster, every catastrophe, things eventually come to an end. You know, they they don't last forever. Even this pandemic at some point will come to an end. There will be a point when we will look back and think, oh, that was a really tough period, but it does end. And I think what I choose to do is I choose to think, okay, this has really encouraged me to pause and stop and reevaluate again. I'm conscious that a vaccine is likely to come at some point, so that will bring some degree of hope. I'm sure treatments will evolve and develop. At the moment, it's bumpy, you know, and it's turbulent, and it feels very uncomfortable, and it feels very, very uneasy. But I choose to focus on the fact that there is another end. And uh, the turbulence does come to an end. It's a period of time. And rather than get stuck in the awfulness of some of the challenges now, what I choose to do is I kind of choose to accept, okay, this has gone on at the moment. I may not necessarily like it. I wouldn't have chosen it. But I choose to look forward and think there is another end. Right. There's, a way out, there's a way forward. And I think that can make all the difference. So the acknowledgement and the recognition, know what it is you're struggling with, know what it is you want. You know, be clear about what direction your life would take. Take responsibility for that. Um, don't apologise or don't be afraid to be hopeful. I think they're probably the, the top tips I would give to, to anyone struggling.
1: So staying hopeful, I think that's a really good point. Also, I'd really like to delve a little bit more into what you said about there's two things that to me seem slightly kind of complementary to each other, but also potentially... Um,
2: Contradictory.
1: Contradictory, yes. Because we've talked about the importance of staying in the now, yes. not not um, dwelling on past mistakes, not uh, creating anxiety over future events, but at the same time looking forward to. So, what would be the best advice? in sort of staying present to what you're experiencing right now but also looking forward to the future
2: it's a a great question so there's a really useful model of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy it very much comes to the to the here and now and i think when the here and now is difficult then the instinct is to worry about the future because it's almost like the brain's way of thinking it can control the problem so if it worries more about the future, then I'll sort out the difficulties in the here and now. So what I what I say to most people I'm working with is, look, staying in the here and now, even when it's difficult, is important because what you do is that present moment awareness is an important thing because it will quieten the mind. It will help you function better. You'll feel stronger. You'll feel less overwhelmed. But the looking forward with hope isn't fixating with fear. And they're two very different things. And I think when people are often driven by by the future, they're driven by future-based worries then becomes detrimental. Because what I'm saying is, I'm not saying that you fixate all the time in the future, but what I'm saying is that you allow yourselves the possibility that there's hope in the future. And it's a very, very different mechanism because it's something that people can hold on to. Yes. Does that make sense? It does. Actually, if someone gets obsessed by worrying about the future and trying to control it, then there's a lack of acceptance and then things feel very, very difficult. So I suppose ultimately what I'm talking about a lot of the time is really psychological flexibility.
1: Yes. So what you said there is in order to quieten the mind, it's important to be in the present moment. And in order to accept the future... Looking forward with hope is a great way of doing that rather than coming into the anxiety of what the future might hold. It's being open to possibility. It's being open to flexibility.
2: Yeah. I think when most people get stuck in patterns with with future, it's often about worry, mm. often about future-based worries. And what we know from you know everything, every piece of research that's been done out there is when people live in a state of future-based worry, their mental health declines their anxiety decreases, their mood decreases. There hasn't been a single piece of research ever that shows that if people allow themselves to hold hope as a possibility in the future, there's been no research showing that to be detrimental.
1: Great, that's good advice.
2: (laughs) All right, so... That's my argument. I'm going to be led by the science in that one. I sound like a government advisor, but I, (laughs) I do believe it to be true. I really do believe that to be true.
1: It does make an instinctive sense. Um, so, for our listeners, you've talked about the importance of being in the present moment, the importance of uh, coming back to the breath, the importance of things like meditation. Um, what do you do if you if your brain has got you into a situation where you feel that there's no way out? You feel as though you cannot bring yourself back from this. What advice would you have?
2: I think at that point, I mean, I think what you're describing is overwhelm. Mm. I think if someone gets to that point of overwhelm and it's impossible for them to quieten their mind or they just feel they're unable to study themselves. I mean, that's the point I would say, talk to someone and seek a bit of help because occasionally, and it doesn't happen all the time, you know, not everyone will need therapy. Not everyone will need medication. Not everyone will need professional support and help. But I think if it ever gets to your point, and there's no right or wrong in any of this here, it's a bit like, I see it like getting the flu. You know, not everybody with the flu will need to be off work. You know, some people will function well and be able to get on it. somebody else may be in bed for a month because it's really hit them quite hard. And I think our mental wellness can be a bit like that. And I think that there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no judgment. There just may be certain periods in life when things become a bit more difficult. And I think if it becomes impossible or really challenging to self-manage, then at that point, I would say, look, talk to someone. You know, start yeah. with a close friend, someone you trust. There are, you know, there's GPs, there's loads of professionals like myself, out there who are trained and experienced and can offer the right help. And again, it's about just keeping in mind that if it feels awful and overwhelming today, it's today it doesn't that doesn't mean it's the entire trajectory of your life it's a period in time and with the right help the right support what you're aiming to do is just bring things down so that you know when i talked about inflammation earlier just think of it like okay well the focus at the moment is about getting the inflammation down to get you back to your point of stability and strength again and whether you can do that independently or whether you need help it doesn't matter the yeah. person can make that choice or sometimes it's, you might watch your friends struggling and we might intervene and say, maybe now is the time to, to talk to someone.
1: Yeah. And to be to help be that gift in their life as well. When you <laughs> could, Especially, and you know what, sometimes it's, it's the pain that we experience that allows us to be able to give that gift. And gaining that kind of perspective is also really important, isn't it?
2: Someone asked me we, um, a question. It was about two weeks ago. Someone had said about, um, what, why did you wait? You know, I'm, I'm you know, not... A, I'm not young anymore I'm not in my twenties, and so Why did you wait until you were older to to write the books and I thought actually i couldn't have done that work when I was younger because i didn't have the i didn't have the life experience mm. you know either personally or professionally and I think you know all of our experiences in life every single experience we have we, we can use you know i wouldn't do what I do I think if I had had an idyllic childhood and no problems or no challenges or no struggles i'm not sure I would have been interested in doing what I do but what fascinated me well what fascinates me about the work I do is that I kind of get human suffering I understand that not only because I see it every day in my clinical practice but actually I know what it's like to struggle as a human being and I actually know that that doesn't feel good but I also know that there are ways forward and that there are ways out and I think that's all of our journeys in life isn't it it's about what do we learn how do we pass that on what do we Mm -hmm. learn how do we pass that on and that's I think that's what it's all about ultimately.
1: Yeah, you're right. such a beautiful way to finish um, what I consider to be a real cracker of an episode. It was was a really special experience to talk it through with you and to be able to have this incredibly insightful conversation. So
2: thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I hope the listeners, you know, get something from it, you know. If there's one word or one syllable or one sentence that's resonated, then you know, use that and listen to it because there's probably something in it that matters.
1: Absolutely. And I would encourage any listener to perhaps even listen again, you know, have a have a pen and paper nearby and write down some of the things that Owen has shared and ask yourself the question. I think we can come back to that point that has been the thread that's perhaps brought this together is to ask yourself those questions so that you can better understand yourself and better understand what it is that makes you truly happy and um i think perhaps it would be worth ending with owen just giving us any final thoughts um, about embracing happiness in this life
2: i think my my final thought would be particularly at the moment is uh, unquestionably, I don't think there's a human being on the planet at the moment who isn't feeling unsettled or a little bit uncertain. Um, And it's worth holding on to that while you may not feel in control of all of the stuff that's going on in the world, all of the external stuff, the more you can bring your focus internally and take responsibility and take ownership for that and bring yourself almost into that, almost like an internal bunker, come back into that place to see if they... Mm. trusting that the storm will pass eventually that will make it so much more manageable
1: beautiful thank you Thank you so much, Owen, for joining me today. And thank you to the listeners for joining us today. What an amazing episode and what an incredible series. I want to say thank you for joining me for this fantastic journey with the wellness edit with Holland and Barrett. The sad news is this was the final episode, but the good news is you'll be able to listen to all eight episodes um, at any streaming platform. So whichever one is your favorite, do tune in and you can revisit some of the incredible conversations that we've had as part of this series. So thank you so much for joining us. For more health and wellness advice, visit the Health Hub at hollandandbarrett.com. All views are those of our guests and not Holland and Barrett unless explicitly stated otherwise. Any reference to brands and or products should not be considered as an endorsement.